Hi everybody, welcome to our fifth episode of Ankle Surgery Update, Science Guiding Treatment. We are deeply sorry for the delay of this month's episode. Following a period of COVID restrictions, we had to focus on catching up on patient care and research projects. Germany still has certain social distancing restrictions in place, which we are deeply happy for. With the holiday time coming up, we hope that the public will continue to act responsibly. But let's have a look at what has been published recently. We decided to split this episode in two parts, which will be published at an interval of three weeks. For the first part, we will have a look at the study by Matheny et al., who had a closer look at the commonly used patient-reported outcome measures in the foot and ankle. Further, we will discuss a paper on bilateral simultaneous hallux MTP fusion published by Mitar et al. First study of this episode is entitled Patient-Reported Outcome Measures in Foot and Ankle. Normative Values Do Not Reflect 100% Full Function by Matheny et al. published in Kester. The way we rate outcome following foot and ankle surgery has changed considerably over the last 30 years. Back in the days, binary patient satisfaction and or objective measurements like range of motion or radiographic alignment were the predominant outcome parameters chosen. Still, we have realized that outcome is something highly subjective and patient-specific. Therefore, various disease-specific patient-reported outcome measures were developed. These do not only allow to assess the outcome of a treatment by comparing baseline to follow-up measures, but also to give our patients a perspective on the subjective treatment outcome prior to intervention. Metheny and colleagues evaluated commonly used outcome measures in foot and ankle surgery. The foot and ankle ability measure, FARM, which scores in an activity of daily living, ADL domain, and the sports domain. The foot and ankle disability index, FADI. The Tegan activity scale. And the SF12 quality of life score, which composes of a physical component, PCS, and a mental component, MCS score. The primary aim of the study was to determine normative values for these scores in the normal population. In the second part of their study, they assessed the reliability of these PROMs and tried to reflect ankle function as a function of the FARM ADL, FARM Sport, SF12 PCS and FADI pain questionnaires using confirmatory factor analysis. Prospectively, the authors included a normal cohort of 271 persons. Normal was defined according to the AAOS, which is the random sample of individuals from the general population of the United States. Participants were invited using a convenient sampling method. Assessed were, next to the FARM, FADI pain scale, Tegan activity scale, and as of 12, the age, sex, and BMI of each patient. All PROMs were not normally distributed and subsequently non-paramatic analysis were conducted. Reliability was calculated for each subscale utilizing ordinal alpha reliability. A confirmatory factor analysis model was used to assess the latent variable ankle function based on the FARM ADL, FARM Sport, SF12 PCS and FADI pain questionnaires. On average, 63% of patients were female, their mean age was 31 plus minus 15 years and the BMI 26 plus minus 6. 29 people, equaling 11%, had previous ankle surgery. Sex, age, BMI and previous ankle surgery status 
had a significant influence in all PROM outcome scores. Although significant, all scores but the SF12 MCS showed only moderate to weak correlations between each other. Reliability of each score was good to excellent. The authors then conducted a confirmatory factor analysis to assess the latent variable ankle functional ability as a function of the FARM ADL, FARM Sport and SF12 PCS and the FADI parcel. The model demonstrated an excellent fit without any modifications. The authors concluded that normative values of foot and ankle outcome measures did not reflect 100% function and differed by sex, age, BMI and previous ankle surgery status. But the confirmatory factor analysis model demonstrated excellent fit and highlights the aggregated use of different outcome measures to reflect ankle function. Hence, in the course of our study ambitions, we had long discussions on outcome assessment and statistics in foot and ankle research. Based on this paper, we apparently are not the only ones to reflect on the current use of outcome measures. Statistics to us remain or even are the essential part of any paper. But although I'm pretty interested in statistics at an orthopedic surgeon level, I had a hard time to follow the statistics applied in this paper. Actually, I had to do some background reading in order to understand what the confirmatory factor analysis actually is. Without a general understanding of the statistics applied, in this case confirmatory factor analysis, one cannot comprehend what the authors were trying to show. So maybe we're asking for what we in Germany call the egg-laying wool milk sow? Something that would be awesome to have but does not really exist? Or do you think that we will have, at some point, mechanism by hands that allow a comprehensive methodology that is still comprehensible for orthopedic surgeons? Thanks Sebastian for this excellent summary and I exactly feel what you mean. Let's first have a brief look at the study in general. In the first part of the study, the authors aimed at assessing normative values for four commonly used patient-rated outcome measures. They aimed to include a representative normal cohort using a convenient sampling method. This methodology was not further specified and the only inclusion and exclusion criteria stated were age above 18 years. But as the cohort analyzed did include persons with previous ankle surgery, it appears reasonable that it also did include patients with compromised ankle functionality. I am not sure whether the patient cohort used to define or analyze normative values should include patients with compromised ankle function. This limitation is not further elaborated by the authors. Assuming a patient cohort with no subjective impairment of foot and ankle function, one would still assume that the mean score of the PROMS would not be 100, as any score should try to avoid a ceiling effect. This means that only the fittest can score 100%, and the general population, although they might not have a subjective impairment, would not reach the total score. Avoiding a ceiling effect helps to discriminate good from very good patient-rated outcomes. For the current study, the FAAM ADL score in those patients with previous ankle surgery was 93 plus minus 12 points. One could assume that a cohort of people without any subjective impairment would show a narrower standard deviation. Furthermore, age, sex and BMI each had a significant influence on the outcome scores. Maybe at some point of time 
we will have scores available that included weighting factors to account for these natural differences. This would increase the comparability between studies considerably. Second, you raised the question about the outcome assessment in foot and ankle research in general. When looking at problems available for foot and ankle, one can find a vast variety of general and specific scores with varying validity and reliability. Still, these problems are used more or less randomly by different research groups for different pathologies. Moreover, not only the outcome measures used, but also the time when they are assessed varies considerably. We have talked about this before in our podcast, but we cannot emphasize enough that we as a research community have to team up and strictly define on how and when outcome measures are assessed for each pathology separately. Finally, statistics. I think we all do have a general understanding of basic parametric and non-parametric statistics. But we have also learned that this unidimensional, only looking at the effect of single parameters on the outcome, is insufficient. As shown in the current study, multiple parameters, such as age, sex and BMI, have an effect on the patient-rated outcome. But applying sufficient statistics, such as multi-regression analysis, propensity score matching, or, as done in this paper, confirmatory factor analysis, does exceed the level of statistics orthopedic surgeons can conduct by themselves. Therefore, as academic surgeons necessitate an interdisciplinary network to conduct meaningful and valid research. Still, research settings vary considerably throughout the world. For us in Germany, for example, there is little infrastructure provided. We design and conduct our research by ourselves. Some stays true for the analysis. In case we want to perform analysis that we are not comfortable with, such as multivariant regression analysis, propensity score matching, meta-analysis, or confirmatory factor analysis, it is on us to find a statistician to help us with the analysis. Contrary in the United States, for example, universities maintain an infrastructure, including informationists and statisticians, which are involved in every step of the study design, implementation, and analysis. This type of infrastructure does not only allow the surgeon to effectively implement research in their clinical routine, but it also does increase the meaningfulness and the impact of the research conducted significantly. So what did we learn for our daily practice? We ended up not talking too much about the actual study presented. Still, this to me has been a meaningful discussion. I think there are two main take-home messages. First, even though PROMs are a great achievement of the traditional methods of outcome assessment, the individual PROMs are not robust and do not reflect all aspects of ankle functionality. Second, research is a team effort. Research must be conducted in an interdisciplinary team to not only apply the right methodology, but also to draw the right conclusions based on the most precise statistics available. With respect to prompts, we, for example, could team up with statisticians and psychologists who have a long-standing history of subjective outcome assessment to actually develop valid prompts that reflect all aspects of ankle functionality. The second paper discussed in this month's episode was published in Foot and Ankle Surgery by Meta et al., the study is entitled Outcomes of Bilateral Simultaneous Hullux MTP Joint Fusion. 
Atherthesis of the first MTP joint is frequently performed as hallux rigidus is a common situation. The cause for this disease is still unknown. There is definitely an accumulation in families and many patients suffer from bilateral pathology. Therefore, genetic factors must be involved. As a consequence, many patients require bilateral atherthesis. The vast majority of foot and ankle surgeons has concerns to perform arthrodesis simultaneously on both feet. The concern is that the patient will be severely incapacitated in the early postoperative period. Furthermore, the inability to partially bear weight might lead to an increase in non-union. In this retrospective study, 16 patients who underwent bilateral simultaneous first MTP joint arthrodesis were compared to 16 patients who had unilateral MTP arthrodesis with regards to outcome, tolerance, cost, and time effectiveness. All procedures were carried out using dorsal locking plates. Outcome measures were evaluated using the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society score and the self-reported foot and ankle questionnaire for the bilateral group only. The AOFAS was collected for the bilateral group only and compared to the results reported in literature for unilateral fusions. Regarding the SEFAS grading, 88% had good or excellent outcome scores in both groups. The post-op AOFAS was 86 in the bilateral group and comparable to unilateral surgeries reported in the literature. The average duration of surgery in the bilateral group was 118 minutes compared to 70 minutes in the unilateral group. This time was calculated without the time needed for anesthesia, which would be significantly higher in the unilateral group. This translated to an average hospital cost of 5,325 euro for the bilateral and 4,295 euro for the unilateral procedure. The average time of work was 7.3 weeks for the bilateral group. For the unilateral group, the average time of work was 5.7 weeks. For both feet, this would add up to 11.4 weeks. Two patients suffering from rheumatoid arthritis in the bilateral group developed bilateral non-unions with one toe being symptomatic. One patient operated unilateral also suffered a symptomatic non-union. Wound healing problems were observed in one patient in the bilateral group which were treated non-operatively. The authors concluded that bilateral simultaneous hallux MTP joint arthrodesis is an effective, convenient, and cost-effective option for patients requiring MTP fusions for bilateral hallux pathology. That really is an interesting study, as we also have been concerned performing this procedure bilaterally. Nevertheless, some aspects should be discussed. Most of the limitations are typical for retrospective studies. First, the number is very limited with 16 patients per group only. Second, the study was not randomized. The AOFAS was not collected for the unilateral group. As a consequence, the results were comparable to the literature. No sample size calculation was conducted, given that this study was based on available data. Furthermore, during the course of the study, the implant was changed. Yes, Sebastian, I fully agree. But besides these limitations, for me, it really reduced my concerns to perform arthrodesis of the first MTP joint bilaterally. 
Nevertheless, I believe that these patients still should be selected carefully. At least in the beginning, I would rather offer this to younger and more active patients. And probably, I would not select high-risk patients, for example, suffering from rheumatoid arthritis. As always, you can find links to the cited papers in the description of this episode. Thank you very much for listening to Ankle Surgery Update, Science Guiding Treatment. Make sure to tune in for the second part of this month's episode in three weeks' time.